Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers their life. Hello and welcome to The Plays the Thing. That was Pete Postlethwaite performing the preface to Romeo and Juliet in Boz Lerman's 1996 production of Romeo and Juliet. My name is Tim McIntosh. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sarah Jane Bentley. And welcome to the first episode of our five-part discussion of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Heidi and Sarah Jane, it's Romeo and Juliet. This is one of the granddaddies, right? This is one of the plays from the playwright. And I'm really excited to have both of you back in the same Zoom room. Uh, You are Sarah Jane. We haven't seen you for a while. You are in your classroom. You're back in your classroom. How's that? It's, uh, it's been an exciting return. I mean, it's been a strange one. I haven't actually met any of my students yet because everything is locked down in Britain still. Mm. So in a way, that's been a kind return to work because I've had a lot less to do than I would otherwise. But it's been great to get out of the house and be back in my classroom. And are you hosting Zoom meetings or the equivalent uh, from your classroom? Yes, that's right. So all teaching has been online and... There's been a lot of conversation over Zoom, which can be quite delightful. But I'm looking forward to getting the boys back, actually, as well. It's hard when there are 20 people on a call. Absolutely. Heidi, have you had to do much online teaching during COVID? Uh, At the end of last school year, I did. This year, we're in the classroom, but I only have 10 students in my classroom. And so it's easier to social distance and, you know, 
mask up between classes and right. all, all those things that we that we have to do. I'm right. so so grateful for that freedom, as Sarah Jane says, to be face to face. There's something really special in that, and as you know, David Hicks says that divine eros or love between teacher and student is, you know, the source of all virtue and learning. And it's really hard to cultivate that over a screen. For sure. Absolutely. That's right. You guys, as we were getting ready for Romeo and Juliet, I was just reminded of how influential this play is. I mean, if you found someone, you know, on the street and you said Romeo and Juliet, instantly a picture is going to spring to their mind, I think. Maybe it's of the balcony scene of Romeo climbing up the balcony to Juliet. Maybe it's the death scene, you know, but everyone has this notion, I think, in the English speaking world. And when I say everyone, I mean, genuinely, everyone has a notion of the storyline of Romeo and Juliet. A couple questions to start with, and we can handle them in any order you want to go in. Why is the play so enduring is one of my questions. And the second question is, what rivals does Romeo and Juliet have in the popular imagination of the English-speaking world? I, like, do the Gospels rival Romeo and Juliet? Does the David and Goliath story rival Romeo and Juliet? So those are my two questions. What makes the play so enduring? And yeah, what are Romeo and Juliet's rivals? Well, I think one of the things that makes it so enduring is that it depicts romantic love in a way that's idealized and I think it goes even beyond being idealized. I think there's a transcendental quality to the love of Romeo and Juliet. And Juliet's virtue is peerless. And I think that it's, it's the best sort of romantic story that we have. I don't know where Shakespeare got Juliet from. She's mm. certainly different to her sources. She's so generous. She has some magnificent speeches and um, for me, the, she's the main attraction of the play, but I think thwarted love, youthful passion, I think mm. those are things that speak to many, many people. And um, of course, it's one of Shakespeare's very, very early plays. So there's also that kind of youthful passion at work in the play as well. And as for its rivals, well, I don't know. I mean, I suppose in literary circles, a character like the wife of Bath might Mm. be a sort of a, a figure who might be in the imagination to do with love and marriage, but not for the same reasons as Romeo and Juliet, obviously. I don't know. I don't know where right. we would go. Maybe maybe Milton, maybe Dante, but again, that's, a, that's not quite translated into popular culture in the same way as Romeo and Juliet. I mean, I asked my boys the other day, what does the name Romeo mean? And they said, oh, we've looked it up. It means uh, some, a romantic lover, a tragic romantic lover. Hmm. I said, no, no, it has come to mean that because right. of Shakespeare's Thanks play. to Shakespeare. Yeah, so it's interesting how the play has had so much influence in that way. And it's a play that's edited and edited all the time. And it's, it's edited in order to make the love more ideal. So the bits that are hmm. cut out are always um, the bits that we don't really want to happen. So over time, it's changed and it's become more and more attractive, I suppose, to the audience. And yeah. Those are, those are my answers, but I'm sure there's a better answer to what rivals it in the popular imagination. That's where I got stuck on the question, because I, I think in terms of the most recognizable storyline, I don't know that there is one. 
there's probably more influential kind of archetypal, you know, like the Odyssey, like the the, the right. journey, the quest narrative, you know, things like that. Maybe King Arthur in uh, in Great Britain, like in the UK. There's there's certain figures that have captured the romantic imagination of our culture since then. But there is something special about Romeo and Juliet that is uh, just copied over and over again, even when we don't know that it is, right? Um, many, many stories of young love are based entirely on this Romeo and Juliet idea, then we, we don't even recognize it. So, Do you two remember your first encounter with the play? I'm sure you were really young growing up in literate households like you were. Do you have any recollection of when you first read the play, saw a production of the play? Sarah Jane? Yes, I remember vividly because I first encountered it at school when I was 15, 16 years old. And it was 15. You were 15 before. That was the first time that you. You're kidding. That's like, I would have guessed nine. Right? Like. I'm pretty sure that was my first encounter yeah. with it. I probably wow. heard of it, yeah. but yeah, I think to properly read it through and know what I was dealing with. Yeah, I think so. And what was your response? How did you respond to it? As a kind of heady hormonal teenager would, I suppose. I, <laughs> I don't think I understood it very well, but I absolutely loved it. And I remember then I loved, because it was in the 90s and I absolutely loved the Lerman film and the mm. music and everything about it. I was completely sold. And now teaching it again at 38, I cannot watch the Lerman film. I find it grotesque. Really? Oh, interesting. Yeah. What about it is grotesque? Because I, I think... One of the things that we'll hopefully do for listeners is um, point them to productions that we, you know, like, recommend. What do you find disgusting about the Lerman film? I, now I find it unwatchable. I think it's something to do with the tawdry nature of the imagery that it, it, Lerman works with this kind of hyper-reality where everything's exaggerated. The colors are really gaudy. The music is loud. The action is quick. And I feel like the play just disappears behind all the theatricality and the cinematography and that it's, it's, it's almost like idolatry replaces something of the true love and Mm. religion that's going on in the play. Mm. Heidi, do you remember your first occasion with the play, reading it, seeing it? The first time I read it for sure was high school and Mm. was ninth grade, Uh, but it was in my imagination long before that. And I can't say how, which is why I'm, I think that, your your question is so compelling. Where what other story might have more hold on the popular imagination? And that's why I said I'm not really sure because I can't remember encountering Romeo and Juliet before I read it uh, in in high school. But I know for sure I knew the whole story by the time I got there. How about but, you, Tim? That's my recollection. Also, I knew by the time I had really encountered it, I had I had already known about it. But I will say. And I can't remember the exact circumstances. The first time that I really delved into it and Romeo and Juliet both died at the end and, and they could have survived. I remember when that really landed, I felt like profound grief. And I also felt like a mistake has been made somewhere. Like the author of this story made a mistake because this is not how things are supposed to go. And can we like rewind and read and do this again at the end? Especially, I think the very, um, 
the timing of each of their deaths, they just barely miss surviving. And it just seems such an awful crime to me. I was really heartbroken. I was really heartbroken. And I will confess, Sarah Jane, I recently rewatched the Baz Luhrmann film and I got heartbroken all over again. And I actually loved it. I loved it. I get your complaint though. It's very much... It's, it's very, very much over a the spectacle. top. It's yeah. as mellow, like the, the production is as melodramatic as the play. Right. And I think some people really love that and find it to be like, you know, this like very intense experience. And then I can also see that it could be like, well, why don't you just like take it down a notch? We're not right. anymore. So um, I used to love it. And I can, I totally yeah. see what people love in it. I think the soundtrack is great, mm-hmm. but then, I, yeah. And then the Zeffirelli is just so mm. alive with the subtlety of the language and the beauty of Juliet, who doesn't even wear any makeup. And I just, now for me, that is truer to what the play should be. Uh, just a personal story. I was traveling through Europe when I was 27 and I stayed with some friends of my family, the Harbin family in Grenoble, France. And this one night, um, they had three girls that I think 14, 12, and nine. And the 14 year old had been Emily Harbin had been wanting to go see Romeo and Juliet. And so we went to the cinema. And I remember she was just thunderstruck at the end. She was crying. She was so sad. And I didn't know what to do. Like I barely knew this girl. And I wanted to cry also, but I kind of was like, no, play the man, you know head back home and play the man and don't cry or whatever. But that was my first time seeing the film. And I read a review of it. And one of the the reviewers said, you might not like how over the top the production is, but when you see a movie lobby full of 14 and 15 and 16 year old girls like crying their eyes out, the director's done something right, surely. And I, I, I agree with him about that. So the, the play has an incredible reputation. My next question is, is it deserved? Like, is this play really as good as, you know, like we think it is, or is it more just kind of, uh, it's just such a heartbreaker, you know, people really remember it, but it's not a great play. What do you, what do you think on that? I, <laughs> I know that Heidi has an opinion on this, so I think I'm going to go to Heidi first. Tell me, Heidi. Tell me what do this you think. This play is brilliant. This is this play is absolutely stunning. I think that the hold on the public imagination that the story has taken has actually led people not to take this story very seriously, mm. not take this play very seriously. I hear all the time, "Oh, Romeo and Juliet is just two dumb kids who killed themselves for no reason." There's I, I am here and hopefully along with this, you know, crack team of literary investigators to prove that perspective wrong. I think this is one of Shakespeare's most brilliant achievements. Mm. Sarah Jane. I completely agree. And I, I like how um, fresh it is. I think he, he's so, there's no cynicism here, perhaps later on when he's experimenting with more complex forms and he's kind of almost got bored of tragedy and comedy mm. as they are generically, um, things are much more complex and a bit harder to access. But here, this is him in his youthful vitality and he writes comedy so well. And, 
Yet, I think it's a mistake to think that this play is, you know, a comedy that just suddenly turns around into a tragedy. I think the tragedy is there from the beginning and it's dark and the imagery of dark and light is so powerful throughout the play. This is a masterpiece, I agree. It's a brilliant piece of theatre. We hear the whole play in that opening preface that we got at the top of the podcast. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. A pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. We know from what is line 10 our heroes are not going to make it. And we probably don't pick that up. We, our, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. We might not pick it up. But I, all throughout the play, we see these little seeds beginning to blossom that they both know they're not going to make it. They're just little lines here and there, little like pictures that they see. Um, Romeo has a picture of himself dead, I think in, in act two. And... So I, I agree with you, Sarah Jane, like the idea that this was a comedy that kind of got off the rails and took a sad turn or something like that. Shakespeare's got us on the track to this terrible demise from the opening lines of the play. Do people, do, are, are there any misunderstandings you think that are commonly associated with this play? Like, you know, because it's become so popular and because it's so known is it, is it a victim of its own branding in some way? Do people walk into this play expecting something, but they should really be so, expecting something different? I think that's a good question. I think that part of the genius of this play is its subtle, uh, is its subtlety in dealing with a, a story that is kind of well-known and well-beloved throughout all of history. Shakespeare isn't the first to write a story of doomed young lovers. Mm. Uh so, but he takes the story and turns it into a masterpiece. And so in one sense, I think, yes, people are looking for the wrong thing, but it's also such an archetypal story that there, it takes a little bit of digging to understand the subtlety of what he's doing, which I think is kind of what we're trying mm. to maybe present here on this, on this series. Yeah. What do you think, Sarah Jane? Mm, I think, I think you're right. I think, um, it's worth just thinking a moment about where the story comes from. And I want to put forward the idea that maybe Shakespeare was working from this poem by Arthur Brooke, which is about Romeo and Juliet. Um, it's, you know, Shakespeare didn't care much about plots. When he could steal one, he mm. would. So there, are, I think there are four different or five different sources for this play. But Arthur Brooke's poem is really interesting in that it has a preface that admonishes the lovers and gives us this kind of moralizing and makes out that this is going to be a cautionary tale. But then the poem itself is much more generous to Romeo and Juliet. And mm. Shakespeare then takes that a step further and is even more generous to his characters. So I think one mistake, um, to go back to your question, Tim, is that I think it would be a misreading to say, you know, this is a play about how everything goes wrong if you disobey your parents. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's what, mm -hmm. I don't think this is a moralizing play. Um, so that's interesting. I think it's worth reading that poem by Arthur Brooke from 1562, The Tragedy of Romeus and Juliet. Um, and then I think the other character who can sometimes get misread is probably Mercutio. Um, yes. So, I mean, he's a tricky character, but I think the idea that there's some kind of erotic love between Romeo and Mercutio, I don't find a lot of evidence for that in the play. And I think we forget as well that Mercutio, he never knows about Juliet. 
It's, he's never huh. aware of her existence. So I think those are sometimes some pitfalls we can drop into. Uh, Baz Luhrmann's production really plays up the potential affection between Mercutio and, and Romeo. Um, one of the questions, Sarah Jane, that I had that, that I would like for us to kind of touch on at various points during the next five podcasts is, is this a tragedy of character? I mean, Sarah Jane, you've already stated, like, I think it'd be a mistake to read this as if this is the kind of, you know, this is the, this is the kind of doom that you face if you don't obey your parents. So maybe there's another character flaw that we should be looking for, or maybe we're just dealing with a tragedy that is not a tragedy of character or that maybe is a tragedy of another kind. Maybe that's, that's, I think, something that we need to ask throughout this play as we go forward. Are we looking for character flaws, something other than, you know, like a willingness to disobey your parents? Or is this a tragedy brought on by something other than these two characters' personal failings? Um, act one, we start with Romeo. He's unhappy. Why is he unhappy, you guys? Well, we start, if I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah. Because that, that does come up here in scene one. Yeah. But we, we start with servants fighting over mm. the Montague and Capulet conflict. Like we start in, in some, I think in every way, we're in media race when we come into this play. Like we, there is a backstory to this play that's given to us in the prologue, which is a absolutely perfect sonnet, by the way. Um, so we're given this backstory that there is a conflict between two families and, uh, and then actually the, the prologue just gives us the whole story. Mm -hmm. They're going to fall in love it and does, die right. in the end. And it's going to bring, bring about the, redemption of this relationship but we know we have civil blood makes civil hands unclean man what a perfect line is that like mm -hmm. you just need to that's like one of those mic drop lines it's great uh, it's great poetry. <laughs> but we do start with with the conflict between these two houses in the society we don't start with the personal we start with the societal yeah we have a conflict in verona that is that is breaking apart the citizens in the streets and then in, into that comes Romeo, the person, the young man, having a conflict of his own within his own heart. Yeah. 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 What's he sad about, Sarah Jane? Well, I mean, there's an obvious answer to that, which is unrequited love, Rosaline's mm. unrequited mm. love. But I, I do think the answer to that is more complex than simply that. I think Heidi's absolutely right that the conflict at the start of the play accentuates Romeo's predicament in a way that he is uh, going to be involved in a brawling love because he is in love with the woman who is the daughter of his enemy, yeah. <laughs> the enemy family. And I think initially what was shown, the hot-headed tendencies of young men. So Samson and Gregory up for a fight, lusty, passionate in the heat of the day. And so then it's, it's interesting. Shakespeare creates a challenge for the audience, which is that we have to get beyond that and then accept that Romeo's love for Juliet is real and not just another lusty passion. So I think it's interesting how Shakespeare, in a way, sets us off slightly on the wrong track and encourages us to think of Romeo in one way and then shows actually that he's much truer and deeper than that. And some audience members and readers never quite are able to make that shift and want to just see him as fickle and petulant, which I don't believe he is. 
So why is he unhappy? Well, he is caught in the predicament of the Petrarchan lover. He's found this peerless woman who he is devoted to and he can't have her. <laughs> she's completely untenable. She will not requite his love. She's said that she's going to um, maintain her chastity, he tells us. And so part of his passionate outlet, I suppose, is actually this angst. He's actually like indulging in the fact that the love is unrequited. And it's so potent in his language. I mean, if we think of the biblical idea of love and that passage from Corinthians that's so often read at weddings, when we first encounter Romeo and discover that the problem is he's in love, it just doesn't sound like love because everything about him is in some kind of turmoil. And he's speaking in a way that is completely out of harmony. And so... Um, Say more about that. He's speaking in a way that's completely out of harmony. Well, he, he talks in oxymorons, doesn't he? And he, he uses language that is so um, conflicted. So he says... Here's much to do with hate, but more with love. Why then, O oh, brawling love, O oh, loving hate, O oh, anything mm. of nothing first create, O oh, heavy lightness, serious vanity, misshapen chaos of well-seeming forms, feather of lead, bright smoke, cold fire, sick health, still waking sleep that is not what it is. This love feel I that feel no love in this. Mm. And there, there's just no peace in him at the start of the play. He seems to have, you know, kind of been, he's, he's found on the periphery of society. He seems to be restless. And even his best friend, Benvolio, can't seem to reason with him because his counselors are his passions. Romeo's counselors are his desires. Mm. So it's, he's in an, a very unhappy state of unrest and disharmony at the start of the play, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I like that you're pointing out how out of harmony that he is and the Petrarchan lover is just the, the exact right, you know, literary character for that, I guess. But one of the things I hear about Romeo all the time is he's just like a serial faller in lover, right? Like mm -hmm. he's just always mm -hmm. falling in love with the right. next girl. What is the point of Rosaline, right? And, but the language, and this is why I think this play is so brilliant. And I know we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this, the three of us, but this, as you pointed out earlier, Sarah Jane, this is one of Shakespeare's early plays. And it's his first, in my opinion, it's his first great tragedy. And the way that he has Romeo utilize the language of love in act one is so, so brilliant. So because he's out of harmony, right? So here's his speech, just to add on to what you're saying, this is his speech about Rosaline. He, as Benvolio says, asks him what's going on with you why are you so sad and he says that he's in love and then he says this well in that hit you miss she'll not be and i'm going to emphasize the words here she'll not be hit with cupid's arrow she hath diane's wit and in strong proof of chastity well armed from love's weak childish bow she lives uncharmed She'll not stay the siege of loving arms, nor bide the encounter of assailing eyes, nor ope her lap to saint seducing gold. Oh, she is rich in beauty, only poor that when she dies, with beauty dies her store. So passing over the pun on dies here at the end, all of this is military language. Yeah, it's martial. Right. It's, it's, it's an infiltration. It's, a, it's the it's not language affection. of attack. 
Yeah. Right. It's the language of military attack, which goes to your point, Sarah Jane, about him being so out of harmony that to him, love is war here. It is. And it's very clear from here, his intentions are merely sexual for her and that his love for her is based on his ability to seduce her. And she is withstanding his assailing attacks upon her chastity. Right. So now this is this. This is one of the evidences that's used to prove that Romeo is just a callow young boy. But if you contrast that to the language that he uses about Juliet, which is always the language of transcendence, right? And we'll, we'll, we can read one of those speeches in a little bit later. But the point is that I love your point about him being out of harmony so much so that even in love, all he can think about is war and attack. And the language that he uses for Rosaline is uh, just indicates his inner internal dissonance that's going to be resolved as he meets upon the moment of meeting and falling in love with Juliet. I want to talk about what happens to Romeo's language when he does meet and fall in love with Juliet, but let's meet Juliet first. Sarah Jane, where, describe Juliet's circumstances when the play opens. What's going on with her? So she's very young. We're told many times in the play that she is not yet 14. She's the daughter of the Capulet family. She's the only surviving daughter. We hear that all her siblings are, were taken by the earth. And she is the, the final living child of the Capulet family. It's a very sad moment that her father says that to Paris. She's been brought up by her nurse, as I think is kind of a fairly standard thing. I don't think they're an aristocratic family. I think the suggestion is that they're more like the Medici. They are a mercantile family with a lot of money. Hmm. And Juliet is highly desirable as a bride um, because she stands to inherit much. And so one of her suitors is Paris, who we meet fairly soon in Act One, and he is keen to marry Juliet. And her father at the moment is trying to press pause on this. And I think she's a very beautiful and although very young, there's a kind of maturity to her. And this really doesn't come to light until she actually meets and falls in love with Romeo. So um, I hope that's covered her sort of context. But maybe there's more to add, perhaps. I'm sure there is. Well said. I'm sure there is, and we've got four more acts to to kind of discover more about who she is. I want to push us to the end of Act One at the first meeting. The first meeting, you know, famously takes place at a party at Juliet's house, hosted by her family, and Romeo and his friends are not supposed to be there. They're masked, they're disguised, so they can kind of steal into the party without being noticed. And then there's this moment that these two see each other. And just to remind you, just about like just the brilliance of the stagecraft, we know long before Romeo and Juliet do that they cannot fall in love. It is not allowed given like who their families are. And so there's this doom is hanging over this first meeting and we want it to happen. We want them to meet each other. The play is called Romeo and Juliet. We've been introduced to both of them. They belong together. And we also know the sword is hanging over them from the beginning. But when they meet, the way in which they speak to each other is so compelling. And I did not realize until later 
they're speaking, they're completing a sonnet that they're speaking to each other. Am I right in saying that? This is another kind of like Shakespeare breaks from his ordinary iambic pentameter and he moves us into a sonnet and they speak a sonnet that's a kind of interlaced sonnet to each other. And I actually want to play the audio from Zeffirelli's production that we mentioned earlier of Romeo and Juliet speaking this sonnet to each other. If I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, the gentle sin is this, my lips, two blushing pilgrims ready stand to smooth the rough touch with a gentle kiss. devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. Have not saints lips, and holy palmer's too? Aye, pilgrim, lips that they must use in prayer. Oh, oh then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. Pray, grant thou, lest faith turn to despair. Saints do not move, though grant for prayer's sake. Then move not. While my prayer's effect I take. Those last two lines complete the sonnet, Juliet's line, saints do not move, though grant for prayer's sake. Romeo, then move not while my prayer's effect I take. It's the completion of the sonnet. It's, Sarah Jane, it's beautiful, isn't it? There's amazing sacramental imagery here, isn't there? That Romeo, whose name means a pilgrim to Rome, comes to Juliet's body as if it's a shrine. And Mm. he's so overawed, he's afraid, not afraid, but he doesn't want to touch it even. And the pair of them indulge in this kind of idolatry of one another. And what mixes so beautifully here is the sacred and the profane. Romeo says, if I profane with my unworthiest hand, this holy shrine, and the shrine is Juliet. And Juliet plays along and she calls him pilgrim, good pilgrim. You do wrong your hand too much. And what happens is that the The idea of their two hands coming together is then intensified by their two lips coming together. And of course, this is all played out by their lines coming together in this beautiful sonnet, which is not a Petrarchan sonnet, but a Shakespearean sonnet. And it ends with a rhyming couplet where um, the prayer actually is, is exchanged for what is actually a profane kiss between two young lovers. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense that, um, there are some jokes here too that Romeo has somehow passed his sins on to Juliet. 
um, because she's like a saint and he's he's come there to unburden himself as a pilgrim. And then he he later manages to steal a second kiss by saying, I can't leave you with the burden of my sin. Let me take it back. <laughs> so um, the harmony of the two is apparent from this first meeting. And of course, this is requited love immediately. They know this, this girl at 13 years old knows this is her soulmate, if there is such a thing. And she knows it straight away. It's very beautiful. And he it's knows very beautiful. it too. Yeah, he does. He knows it too, because earlier, a few pages earlier at line 50, he gives the counter speech to his speech about Rosaline. And here's his speech about Juliet. Remember mm. all of the military martial language that was used in the first one. Mm. Here's his language about Juliet. Oh, she doth teach the torches to burn bright. It seems she hangs upon the cheek of night as a rich jewel in an Ethiop's ear. Beauty too rich for use, for earth too dear. So shows a snowy dove trooping with crows as yonder lady or her fellows shows. The measure done, I'll watch her place of stand and touching hers make blessed my rude hand. Did my heart love till now? Forswear its sight, for I ne'er saw true beauty till this night. So we switch from this military assailing language in which he's trying to seduce Rosaline into bed. And that's his only goal. And that's the only way he knows to think of love. And now in just a, a glimpse, he is completely changed. The, the language, the words that are coming from his mouth are, it, are now the language of the words of transcendence in which he's not only not going to attempt to seduce her, he's afraid to touch her hand even right to your point that you just made sarah jane now she is a saint she is she is he is unworthy of her and so the the position is has shifted earlier he's the one who is in the position of power and it's his job to overcome this lady's resistance to her virginity and instead now we have an, an entirely different posture towards uh, towards Juliet and the beginning of the kind of language that we have throughout the rest of the play uh, of the the thin veil between heaven and earth and uh, the lofty nature of their love. Um, and as you pointed out, the language that they use from now on is always religious in speaking of each other. Yeah. Uh, and so the interpretation could be that it's idolatrous or it could be that it's transcendent. And Shakespeare leaves that up to the reader to discern and the, or the audience to discern. Are we on the side of this love? But, but I don't think there's any doubt in Shakespeare's mind through the communication here in Act 1 that this is real love. Is it idolatrous love or is it holy love? That's what the audience has to decide. We're not talking about just two dumb kids who see each other across the cafeteria and think they're in love. This is real. Mm -hmm. And we see that in the language they use to each other and the language that Romeo uses from the very beginning. Yes, absolutely. And I think there's another intensifying a dramatic um, context to bring into account here as well is that when when Romeo is about to enter into the feast, the Capulet feast where he ought not to be, where they're sort of risking their lives, he has a vision of his untimely death. He's had a dream, a premonition that there is some consequence yet hanging in the stars and he's afraid and he goes in with heavy heart, fearing for his life and then this happens. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And this is why the play is so brilliant, Sarah Jane. This is why the play is so brilliant, because then we are left with a question for the rest of the play, which is, is this a real love that ought they ought to pursue and their families are keeping them apart, whatever duty is keeping them apart, but they ought to give into their desire, right? Or is this that they have abandoned their duty because of their profane desire for one another, And the reason that their love is profane is because of their names, which is another whole contemplation of the play, right? It's ontology (laughs) and it's there. They have two different names and those names hate each other by definition and their primary duty is to their family. But once they have fallen in love, then everything has shifted for them. And now they have to deal with the fact that their desire is for one another, their duty is to their family and to their name. But as we, you know, the most famous line in the play, of rose by any other name may smell as sweet. Like we are left with then with the question Shakespeare is raising is, does their name matter? Mm. Right? Mm. Um, are they a Montague and a Capulet ontologically by nature? Right? Or... Do they just happen to have these names, but they really belong together? And that comes back to the question of fortune that's brought up by by Romeo, right? He has this premonition. There's a consequence in the stars. Then later he claims, you know, another famous line, I am fortune's fool. Is he fortune's fool? You know, so all of these complex threads are so much more than two dumb kids falling in love. Uh, There's, he's asking these big human questions that we all ask at some point in our lives. He's just casting it in this plot. That's right. You've made me think of so many things there, Heidi, but the first one I wanted to pick up on was what you were saying about them belonging to enemy families and how this is the great obstacle to their love. And of course it is. And what I want to just indulge in what we all try to do, which is like try and find ways of saving their lives if just Mm. this had happened. Mm. So at the beginning of the play, when the first street brawl has happened, the prince comes and says, if ever you disturb our streets again, your lives shall pay the forfeit of the peace. And he's talking to Montague and Capulet. But of course, when the streets are disturbed the next time, it's by Tybalt and Romeo. And Montague and Capulet do not lose their lives for this. Rather, Mm -hmm. Romeo is banished, and then it leads to Romeo and Juliet losing their lives for this. And it should never happen that way, that the the parents bury their children. But as a result, the the feud is reconciled. So there is a transcendent power to their love, that it, although they cleave from their families in their love, it actually unites them, ultimately. Right. Right. Which undercuts the idolatry theory, mm. right? Which is, why the, which is why the play is so complex and layered. And this is one of his great masterpieces that looks simple on the outside. But once you start digging in, it, you know, start asking when Romeo claims, am I, I am fortune's fool. We start, well, are you? Because in one sense he is, because the, the, the letter goes astray because someone was sick. Right. And that was just a chance. Yeah. It's quite, quite um, pertinent to today because there's a plague, isn't there? And the friar gets locked up in a house and can't leave. So he's literally in COVID lockdown with this letter and can't go to Romeo. And so in a sense, everything he's saying, he is fortune's fool. He is going Mm. to die because of some like chance, but 
On the other hand, that does bring the reconciliation of their families, which is given to us in the prologue. This is not a plot-driven story. We're not supposed to be biting our nails and hanging on the edge of our seats to find out what happens to these lovers. We know from the beginning that they're going to die and that their death is going to reconcile their family's feud. So we know already that that's happening. And so what we then have is a plot that is kind of a magic box that opens up all of these complex questions of human existence. Does that mean that their love is transcendent or is it because they were so idolatrous and loved each other above all else and were willing to risk everything? You know, I have this whole theory that all of literature comes down to the question of duty and desire. And this play is just like full of that. They have this irreconcilable conflict chasm between those two things. Once they have fallen in love, it's forever. It's eternal. We see that from the very beginning. And and yet they are a Montague and a Capulet and they cannot be together. We know that from the very beginning. So in one sense, it's a play that hangs on a razor's edge, right? Because it is chance that keeps them apart. It's the, it's the tragedy that was almost a comedy. Mm. Uh, but we also have from the very beginning this sense of doom hanging over the whole thing um, because their ontological existence, their very being is divided from the beginning. They cannot have either way at this point. They cannot go back to their families because they are in love. And yet they cannot be together because they are their part of their families. Right. And I think this brings us back to the big question you were asking earlier, Tim, which is, you know, is this a, are there character flaws? Is this a tragedy of character? Um, I think I agree with Northrop Fry that it isn't because this love happens to them. Passion is the opposite of action. It's something received. It's something that takes over you. And that happens to Romeo and Juliet, I think. And their love never dies. It's, it's more that circumstances overtake them, as Heidi was saying. And if there are any flaws, the one thing I can't forgive Romeo for is his haste. I don't understand why he stands on sudden haste. That's With the one Tibble thing. Or... No, that's he says this to the friar. It's in relation to his mm. urge to be with Juliet, which I do mm. understand. But uh, if he could have just been a bit more patient... Do you think about, okay, okay. If he was a little bit more patient, is it really going to turn out roses for him? I'm like, what would change about their circumstances, Sarah Jane? They're still stuck. Warring families. They're like, they're, they could they're have planned between these to run away better though. I mean, if someone came at me with like, hey, I have a magic potion that'll make you be dead for three days. <laughs> you wouldn't second, buy that? Like, <laughs> do you have a plan B? Like, can I just like sneak out at night on a horse? <laughs> right. But I mean, we are way getting ahead of ourselves here. But I think you're bringing up a really good point because we do have young lovers and we know that from, from the very beginning that Romeo is a bit of a hothead. We see that with Rosaline. We see that in his buddies, in his relationship with his boys, you know, which is another big theme in any kind of Shakespearean romance is the movement from friendship to heterosexual love. Right. That's a, a big theme. In, uh, and we see that here. 
right? But we do know that he's a bit of a hothead, but he has a good reputation. That's what um, Capulet even says that to Tybalt. He essentially tells Tybalt, who's a jerk from the very beginning, right? Like stand down when Tybalt's angry at having Romeo at the party. He's like, stand down, boy. Like we, I've heard good things about Romeo. The only problem with him is that he is a Montague, uh, but we're not going to disturb the peace tonight because he's just been threatened by the prince, right? Hmm. So, and he doesn't want to ruin the party. And Tybalt doesn't want to stand down and that causes a lot of trouble. But we do know that we do have these young people. And so they are rushing into it. That's why I think they're not 27 in the play. So we also have the fact, we also do have their adolescence as factors in their choices. Yeah, yeah. You guys, let's look forward to Act Two. We can we can still d- next week discuss Act One. Things that we didn't cover. We've um, only been talking for five minutes. I know. Right? I know. I know. Barely scratched the surface. We, sur- we didn't even talk surface. about Mercutio. I know Queen um, Mab. Yes, exactly. The the speech that is never cut from any production. I, yeah, it wasn't even cut from Boz Lerman. He he cut it's everything, but he didn't too. cut. He it's like left that whole speech in there. Language. He's just like, I love the English language. I figured out how fun it is. So just quickly on that, I think that speech was actually meant for a Midsummer Night's Dream and ended up in Romeo and oh, Juliet. Interesting. Wait, do you really think that? Yeah. Like Shakespeare it was fits. like, man, this is just too good. I don't have a place for it in Midsummer. Let's smuggle it into Romeo and Juliet. There's no, one, there's no one in Midsummer already, Night's Dream who could have given it. I mean, Puck. I see. Kind of a yeah. fairy. It doesn't make sense. Then the mechanicals could have, but they're just too silly. Mm. So I think he had it there and he wanted someone to say it. And he gave it to Mercutio. It's a great character to give it to. He's the right character to deliver it. Uh, speaking of characters that I want our listeners to keep an eye on, pay attention to the nurse. She's sometimes lost among all these big personalities, not just Romeo and Juliet, but the head of the different families. Um, The nurse is one of the great secondary characters in Shakespeare. And I'm curious, I mean, in in effect, she is Juliet's real mom. It's interesting to find out how she plays the familial conflict when the territory is her daughter. In effect, her daughter, Juliet. Other things to look forward to in the coming acts, you guys. Oh, Juliet. Juliet's speeches just. Mm. My bounty is as boundless as the ocean. Mm. What a line. This is a really long first act for Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because Shakespeare is taking on something pretty complex in this play which is the nature of, you know, all the things that we've been talking about. And he throws out these threads, you know, in act one, Romeo's character, uh, Juliet, which I think we see Juliet's strength of character, even in act one, when her mother comes and tells her that she wants her to consider Paris. Mm. And Juliet responds with like this almost like docile acceptance of this idea but still doing so with an air of individuality. Like, I haven't thought about it. I'm willing to consider it because of my affection and duty towards my family, right? Um, But there's, in her interactions with Romeo, even in act one, she's not one of 
Shakespeare's most spirited heroines. Like she's not Beatrice or Rosalind. Right. It's like she's she's not like fun and quick witted, but she has, I think, an immediately apparent core strength of character from the very beginning that I think Romeo doesn't have, doesn't display, at least in this act. Mm. Um, and you know, we can we can talk as we go whether we see it in Romeo ever, but we see it in Juliet for sure, right. which is a remarkable choice on Shakespeare's part. Right. So I think yes, look Especially for characters. for someone so young, so young, if yes. cast as he designed her to be cast. Yes, she is not a shrinking violet right. by any means. Harold Bloom says something like Shakespeare was convinced of the absolute superiority of women, huh. <laughs> huh. <laughs> which is interesting, he but. Just- wrote a remarkable amount of remarkable women mm. yeah. for his time. And I agree with you, Heidi. I think that Romeo is much improved by his contact and love with Juliet. I think she brings him on. And we could, that's something we can look at through the play, how he grows and develops and matures because of her influence. The play is so easy, I think, because we live in sort of a a sexually coarsened culture. It's very easy to look for the sort of like rule breaking in this play and the profane aspects of this play. But I think, as you have both pointed out, um, the ennobling and sacred aspects of their affection for each other is almost like now it feels like a subversive reading to read, to read how Juliet makes Romeo a better person. He turns, she turns his eyes toward higher things, which is not to say that his eyes are not turned toward her. Most definitely they are. But it's almost as if he moves from like the chaos of his inner self toward, he lifts his eyes to the horizon and he begins to kind of like imagine a life beyond just this familial dispute, beyond just satisfying his loins, he moves towards something higher. So I, 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 I want to suggest that to our readers that kind of the subversive reading today in the kind of culture we live in is read that in Romeo because it is there. It is very prominent. It's just easy to, it's easy to miss amid all the punnery and innuendo that's also there, you know. I want to thank you both, of course, for being on the show. And I want to remind everyone that if you want to participate in the play as you read along with us or as you you watch a production, you can find us on the Close Reads discussion page on Facebook. We're also on Instagram at Close Reads Pods. And we would love to hear from you there. Uh, As a testament to the influence of this play, we're going to close each of our episodes with a different piece of music that was heavily influenced by Romeo and Juliet. I'm not going to give you the names of any of these. Some of them you'll pick up fairly easily. But um, if you can identify the artist and or the song, you get bonus points. Just find us on the Close Reads discussion page and let us know who you heard at the end of the podcast. Um, thanks again, everyone, for listening. And we bid you all, as always... Happy reading. So your love struck Romeo, he's got a serenade. Laying everybody low with a love song that he made. Finds a street light, he steps out of the shade. He says, You and me, babe, how about it? 
letters that he'd thrown me He nearly gave me a heart attack He's underneath the window Just singing Hey, lie, my boyfriend's back You shouldn't come around here Singing up with people like that Anyway, what you gonna do about it? The dice wasn't loaded from the start And I bet And you exploded in my heart And I forget, I forget A movie song When you gonna realize It was just what the time was wrong Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.